Our study through the book of 2 Corinthians this morning, so if you'd open there to chapter 4, we'll be reading the chapter. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 12 today. Our treasures in jars of clay. Imagine you're on your way to, you're at a wedding feast, and the maitre d' comes by, and he has two bottles of wine to show you. One is all dusty and covered in mold, and you can't even read the label. The other bottle is a crystal glass bottle filled with a beautiful-looking wine. Which one do you choose? Well, the moldy bottle has been laying up in a cold cellar deep underground for the last 25 years. And the crystal craft is filled with wine that came out of a box they came from Walmart. You can be deceived by looking at the wrapper and not at the treasure within. And I think that's where Paul's thoughts are going with this morning. The treasure is what's important, not what holds it, what carries it, what transports it. And so that is what we will be considering this morning, the treasure and the holder, the, the container. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray your blessing. As we look at your word this morning, encourage and lift up our hearts from it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I will read the chapter if you want to follow along. I'm in the ESV, but and follow along in your own version. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that, we, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into and bring you into his inheritance. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to some, 
and to the more to more people it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. For we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we do not look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And the Lord had his blessing to the reading of his word. So we have this treasure. This is an interesting contrast, this treasure in jars of clay, earthen vessels. What an interesting context. We spoke about that in my introduction, thinking about a bottle of wine. But think about, you have a watch, a Rolex watch. It's an antique. It's dirty. It's crusty. It comes to you wrapped in bubble wrap in a cardboard box. And then you have this beautiful one in a fancy wooden box with a glass lid and carefully carved and intricately done. And it costs only nineteen ninety nine. Which one has value? The one in the beautiful box or the one in the cardboard in bubble wrap? I think we understand the concept that things can come in a wrapper that's worth more than the thing they bring. And that's our sales on a pedal or pedals by wrapping it up and making it look pretty. But it doesn't necessarily mean the contents are of any value. And that's what's going on here. The gospel is like that. The true gospel brings people into the kingdom of God. The true gospel gives people eternal life. It is the tool God has chosen to use. And that's why Paul says he's not ashamed of it, because it is the power of God. It, it, it was once for all delivered unto the saints, Jude 3. It's the teaching, it's teachings of the old paths, Jeremiah tells us to ask for in Jeremiah 6.16. Yes, as we saw in verse 3, though it is veiled to those who are perishing, but it's a light that shines in the heart of believers in verse 6, giving us faith, giving us the light of the world, giving us the light of life, John six twelve or 8, 12. This great and glorious gospel has been propagated by men like Paul and his team. They were viewed as contemptible by the world, by the scholastic enemies who were scholastic adversaries who Paul's been fighting throughout First and Second Corinthians and we've been speaking about throughout this book as we've gone into it. So it was like a, a, a plain, dirty wrapper wrapped around the most glorious thing in the world to deliver it to us. Consider also the false gospel and all of its many variants and proponents over the years. They have one thing in common, as pointed out by Paul in Galatians chapter 1, when he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you to the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. These other gospels are not a gospel. They're not good news. They can do nothing for you. They cannot save you. You do not get to heaven because you believe that you must be circumcised one of the big ones that Paul was fighting in Galatians. You not get to heaven through false gospels. The door is open to the truth of the Word of God in the gospel that it contains. 
of the truths that Christ, the truths of Christ that Paul is talking about. He, he talks about these peddlers of these false gospels in Colossians 2. He says in verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And again in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Yes, these false teachers are trying to delude people. They use plausible-sounding arguments. They use philosophy. They use deceit. But it gets you nowhere. Paul said of himself here in 1 Corinthians, back in chapter 2, we looked at in verse 1 through 5 of chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. But I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. How contrary that is to the spirit of the world with lofty speech, sophisticated and eloquent, and knowledgeable and using, I'm guilty of this once in a while, using Greek and Hebrew words and Latin words. Uh, When I use them, it's for a reason, and I explain them. But some men use that to show their superiority and their greatness. Paul says, no, I didn't do any of that. I only knew Christ Jesus when I came to you. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. You never see a false teacher teaching in fear and trembling because they don't fear God, whereas Paul did. And my speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom. Those are used for deceiving people. But a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, in order that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And that is the point both there and here. It's about God and his word and his wisdom and his greatness and his gospel. It's not about the messenger. The messenger is just the messenger. Think about in the olden days, they would send a messenger. He would ride a horse or he would run. So his skill was being lightweight and fast at running or fast at riding a horse. It wasn't in diplomacy. The message that he carried had the diplomacy or had the important military facts or had the other, and he was just the one transported. The ministers of the gospel are like that. They are not the ones who come up with the great ideas. They did not come up with the way of salvation. They did not go, you know, I have figured out how God can save us, and now you need to hear my wisdom so that you know. No, we just bring the message that is in the word of God. And that's Paul's point. It's, we're just jars of clay. I once saw a mime many, many years ago, the great heroes of the faith, were on one side of pictures, and on the other side, the great heretics of history. And they carefully picked who they would use because the great men of the faith all looked like Calvin and Knox, and I don't know whether you've seen pictures of them, but they were on a scale of one to ten of handsomeness, down of the two or three range, they were not handsome. And all the heretics they picked were, you know, the, the flashy, charismatic, beautiful people. And they were just trying to bring up this point that it isn't the rapper. The rapper, if you people who focus on the rapper, on the man, not the message, not the truth, will follow the heretics. Whereas God is delighted to use the weak and the worthless things of the world to bring out his glory all the more.
Think about what Paul says about himself. He compares himself in this book often to these super apostles, these scholastic opponents that are fighting against him. And he compares how they see themselves and how he sees himself. In 2 Corinthians 5, 11 and 12, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known to your conscience also. We are not commending yourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about the outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So Paul has been reviewing with them, you know, the work he has done for the gospel and for God and for Christ and for them. And he will in this book go back to that over and over again because that is the only thing these scholastics were caring about. They were saying, look, see, Paul, he's... You know, a minor man, see the life he has had to lead, persecuted and harassed and hated and chased from town to town. And of course, as we've said before, the disciple will be like his master. Is that the life you want by following him? Look at us. We're rich. People serve us. They take care of us. They give us money. We live a good life. We have many followers. People don't object to our message. They don't hate it like they hate Paul's. Aren't we better? Paul says, no, all the suffering he went through, he speaks of it in chapter 11, all the blessings, particularly the visions of heaven, that all of us, I'm sure, would love to see. He mentions in chapter 12, and then he says, in chapter 12, verse 10 and following, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, with insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have been a fool, referring to all of his boasting, but you force me to it. I ought to have been commended by you for not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. Paul did not put himself forward as the great leader, the one everyone should follow. He knew his place. He was a persecutor. He tried to destroy the church. He, he was involved in the murder of God's people. He knew his sins, how far short he was from the glory of God. And he speaks of that, particularly in Romans 7 and in other places. He considers himself nothing, not worthy to be a Christian, not worthy to be an apostle, whereas his enemies were puffed up with themselves and thought, I should be followed because of my skill, because of my wisdom, because of my abilities. Paul is saying, I'm nothing. We mentioned before that syncretism, even amongst the Jews, with the local Greek and Roman philosophical tendencies, is what was probably behind all of this. You followed the greatest of the philosophers. And when philosophers debated and one of them lost badly, everybody would leave him to go to the other. I remember there was one philosopher, I forget his name, who actually committed suicide when he lost the debate and all of his followers went to his opponent because that is all that was important to them. And that sadly is what is important to many men, even today, even in the church, even in ministry. They care about their own greatness. They were trying to show their superiority to him and all other comers. 
and they were showing their worldly superior to Paul, their lives compared to his, their worldly success compared to his being driven from town to town. And they were doing this to try and deceive men to follow their false gospels. They were appealing to that personal success, that prosperity, it was empty deceit and plausible-sounding arguments of philosophy. And that's all it was. So Paul is trying to drive us away from that back to the truth of God in the Scriptures. And as we go back to the passage at hand, this treasure that Paul is talking about is that greatest treasure ever known, the treasure of how we can be reconciled with God, how we who deserve to go to hell for all eternity and be tormented forever and ever, day and night without rest, how we can have forgiveness, reconciliation with God, and an eternity of joy in him and with him. And in an age, in a place where there'll be nothing that causes us to stumble and no more sin and no more sorrow and no more tears and no more pain. And that message is the greatest treasure there have ever been, there has ever been, the true gospel. And it says we have this in jars of clay, now, the term jar here can be translated as vessel, and it often is in the New Testament. That's how it's tra- translated in that famous Romans 9 passage, starting in verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same, lus- the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desired to show his wrath and make his power known? has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Paul here is speaking of the elect and the reprobate and what will happen to that. But note, they are vessels or jars of clay. And it's a general way Paul is referring to mankind that we are a vessel of clay. He he is referred to himself by Christ that way. Remember just after he was converted, he was blind and waiting, and there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, go to the street called Straight, to the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarshish named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And they have seen a vision, in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay hands on him so that he might again receive his sight. But Ananias answered him, Lord, I've heard about this from many, about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is my chosen instrument. Instrument there is the same word, vessel, jar. Said, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Acts 9, 10 through 16. I think here in this particular passage, Paul is referring to himself and all ministers of the gospel as jars of clay, not just meaning as mere men, as mortals, but 
as worse than that, as made of clay, made of earth, insignificant and unimportant. I think the emphasis is even more so than normal. All the disciples and all those who make disciples of Christ are at mind here being called jars of clay or earth. There's nothing more low than that idea. The idea is the, the unadorned clay mug, you know, the primitive one. Have you ever seen one? Not even sealed with the uh, painted stuff, just plain. And when you pour something in it, it kind of soaks in and some of it kind of dissolves what you drink from it anyway. That's in contrast, that's Paul, he says. That's me as a minister. That's those who minister faithfully. That's all those who call upon the name of the Lord and give that reason for the hope that is in them from the Scriptures and make disciples of men. That is us. Whereas these super apostles, they think they're golden chalices encrusted with jewels. They think they're so great. That's them. And that's the contrast I think we're seeing in this passage. Not just that he's merely a human, but he's lowly and he knows it. He has seen the Lord. He has seen heaven. He knows his own perspective. Men think, oh, I am here and they are there, so I'm superior. But Paul has seen God infinitely high above all of us. And it, there's no difference between men, not compared to what God is. He knows the truth and he understands that. And that's, I think that's correct feeling here. And I think we know, we can see that's correct by what happens in the next part of verse 7. He gives the reason why this is true. Why are we jars of clay holding this great treasure? To show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Men were not saved because of Paul's elegance of speech. Men were not saved because God had a Paul had a way to couch the gospel to hide the offense and make people accept it. He was, they were not saved and they did not come to know the Lord because of his superior techniques and wisdom. They came because he had the true gospel and the true gospel is the power of God. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God, he says in Romans 1. And I, therefore... I think the contrast he's making is between himself and his greatness, or his lack thereof, and the imagined greatness of his opponents. Remember I spoke before about that Indian pastor who was part of the untouchable class, so low that if you accidentally were brushed against him, you were unfit and unclean and defiled until you made a pilgrimage to the river Ganges and washed yourself in it. He said he had had tens of thousands of converts through his ministry. And when asked, why would your God use one of you when there are so many of the Brahmas, the highest class, the teachers and the holy men, when he could convert one of them and use one of them? And the man said, this untouchable said, if God used one of them, Everyone would be saying the success of the gospel was because of the superiority of the caste of the Brahma, that they are so better than everyone else that people will naturally follow them. But if people are converted through my ministry, nobody will say, oh, 
the superiority of an untouchable is why they follow God. They say, no, it is the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God that has saved souls, and you are nothing. And I think that's Paul's point here. We are nothing. We are jars of clay. That is why verses 8 through 12 are here. Think about it as we read through it. So why are we afflicted in every way but not crushed? To show the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. Why are we perplexed and not driven to despair? To show that power belongs to God and not to us. Why are we always carrying the body of death? Oh, no. Why are we persecuted but not forsaken? To show that power belongs to God. Why are we struck down but not destroyed? To show that power belongs to God and not to us. Why do we carry the body of death of Jesus around in our body? So so that the power may be seen to be from God, not from us. Why are we, why are our lives given over to death for Jesus' sake? Because it shows the power belongs to God, not to us. Now, someone might complain and probably do, weak in the beggarly when they speak of the, the biblical gospel, they make it contemptible in the eyes of the world. Someone might say, oh, I will show the superiority of my gospel by my superiority, by my skill, by my abilities, by my power, by my greatness. I think that's what Paul's adversaries were doing. We've talked about that through this series well, let me ask you, should the believer be imitating the adversaries of the gospel, the adversaries of Paul, or should they be imitating Paul the apostle to the Gentiles? Remember, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He's told them this already. What is Christ in regards to the gospel? We find that clearly written in Isaiah 53, didn't we not? Starting at verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a dry root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. People think Jesus was the most handsome woman in the world. The Bible says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. It was one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Think about that. Was Christ the great charismatic leader that everyone followed because of his beauty, because of his wisdom? Well, not his wisdom, but his outward appearance, his glorious appearance to them? No. He was a poor man who says, remember he said, foxes have dens and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He did not have servants. He did not have a mansion. He did not have followers of himself. He had followers because of the work of God, and he always gave that glory back to God. 
And he says, I have not done this in my own power, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the power of God, the Father. He certainly had the power to do it, but he did it in the power of his Father and the Spirit to show how we should follow God. Who do you think was more like Christ, though? Paul or the super-apostles? I think it's funny that he calls them super-apostles because it's funny in our day and age, the use of those terms. The other question would be, though, who are we trying to be like? Are we trying to be like those supposed super-apostles or like Christ? Now, many men in the ministry, particularly men with a false gospel, know that, that nobody will follow them for Christ. If they want to have followers, they need it to be for themselves. And so they need to fix the gospel. They need to repair what they find broken. They need to remove the stumbling block of Christ, the humiliation of the cross. They need to remove the foolishness of the cross. They need to remove the truth from the gospel and make up a new and better gospel and a new and better God who serves us instead of serving him. It's a terrible and sad state of affairs. Christ, Paul, and all the true disciples of Christ are like jars of clay. We're not like jewel-encrusted golden chalices of the false apostles. And this purpose, the reason why that is true is to show that the power of the conversion of the soul does not belong to us, does not belong to men, does not belong to the minister, it does not belong to the one converted. It belongs to God and God alone. In light of this purpose, in light of having the gospel in a weak and beggarly package, Consider one by one the contrast Paul makes here in verses 8 through 12. We are inflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. I think this may refer back to verses, chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 of the book of Second Corinthians. He says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia, for we were utterly burdened beyond all our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, that we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul faced a lot of persecution, and he speaks of it in this book often. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Note, falsely is important. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they prosecuted the prophets who were before you. We can be afflicted in every way but not crushed because we have that knowledge that there is a reward for all of our persecutions, for all of our trouble. 
for all of our deprivations because of the faith. Sometimes we're actively denied things that we need because we stand for Christ. They take it away, or they refuse to fellowship, or they put us out of the church or out of the work. We need to remember to pray for our friend, the police officer, who lost his job because of his faith being too vocal on Facebook. And pray that he can find a new work as an officer. Now that it's illegal to have Christian faith in law enforcement and public schools, or at least to express it. Sad state of affairs, but many lose things actively because of their faith. Others lose it passively because they want to tithe, they don't have enough money for the pleasures of this life, or because they're aware of the sinfulness or the temptation that comes from the things of this world. They put aside things. They live more meanly and more, more poorly, more difficulties because of their faith. But Jesus says, I truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Why can we give up the things of this world without much concern? We have more waiting for us, and God will multiply what we give up and what we lose in eternity. We also suffer affliction of the affliction of temptations, but we have that great promise in 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you, but that that is common to men. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And we can deal with temptations and not be crushed by them because God makes a way out. We can soldier on no matter what we're afflicted with, remembering the admonition of Hebrews 13, 4, or 5 and 6. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? We soldier on in the hope of eternal life. He goes on to say, we are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Are you ever perplexed about your Christian life? How to be holy, how to accomplish the work of the Lord, how to glorify the Lord? I know I am at times in my life, particularly when struggling with sin, perplexed. Why do I do this? How do I glorify God? How do I become more holy? How do I turn from these temptations and sins? Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, Humble yourselves therefore into the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What a great promise to know God cares for us. Christ will be with us. We don't need to be anxious. We don't need to be fearful. We don't need to be perplexed. We have God, we have his word, we have his spirit within us. We have the promise 
that he will care for us. Verse 9, and you were persecuted, but not forsaken. And this, as I said, we are his children. He will never forsake us. Jesus says, it is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. John six, thirty-nine through 40. Think about that. We, we worry so much sometimes about life. How will I get on? How will I eat? How will I live? Where will I sleep? How will I survive? But God has said he will never leave us or forsake us, and Christ has said, all those who have faith in him will have eternal life. God, Christ, will raise him up personally. We need not fear that somehow Satan can snatch us out of his hand, that temptation can snatch us out of Christ's hand, that sin can snatch us out of his hand. No, he has paid for the sin. We are in his kingdom. We belong to him. He will bring us to heaven. Now, he may bring us to heaven kicking and screaming, being beaten for our sin and unrepented, and we may, as Paul says, get to heaven as if one escaping through fire, meaning we have nothing, no reward, no clothes, no nothing, and have to rely on God alone. But we will get there if we truly believe. It would be better to store up for ourselves treasure in heaven by doing what is right on earth and serving and glorifying him with our lives and our deaths. Yes, but we will not be forsaken. It says, we are cast down, but not destroyed. We can say with the psalmist, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 42, 5 and 6. Yes, there are times when we are cast down from our sin, from our trials, from our struggles, our persecutions. But we know we will once again praise him. If we have believed, we are believing God will be with us. God will raise us up. We will not be destroyed. What is this in 10 and 11? Caring about the body of the death of Christ so that the life of Christ may be manifest in our bodies. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our mortal flesh. What is he talking about, this body and death of Christ, of Jesus? We're not talking about the doctrine of the death of Christ and salvation by his crucifixion, his shedding of blood on the cross. That's, that's not what's in mind here. I'm not talking about how the ministers were carrying along that death for their what happens to them. But we're talking about the sufferings that they underwent. Because the likeness between those sufferings of Christ and the sufferings of God's people is being pictured here. And that suffering, particularly of the pastors and the ministers who were trying to carry the gospel to the people and were being persecuted and harassed. Think of Jesus who was misrepresented as a wicked man, a deceiver, a stirrer up of sedition. And they killed him. Paul, they said the same things about him. And he was persecuted and slandered all the way to death as Christ. 
This is the way it is with them and with Christ and with all of his children. Jesus said it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. That is our goal, and that is what they mocked in Paul's life. Do you really want to be like Paul? Suffer what he suffered? But Jesus goes on to say, If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Matthew 10, 25. If they mocked Christ, they will mock us. If they hated him and slandered him, they will slander us. If they persecuted Christ and killed him, they will persecute us and kill us. But this all has a glorious purpose, so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies, or our mortal flesh. That as Jesus died and rose again, so we also will die and rise again. We'll live on as he lives on forever at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. So we, in all our trials and sufferings, we endure for his sake. We will also live with him forever. That is why death is at work in us, but life in you. Now, some seem to mistake this as being an ironic statement. And he does make one of those in chapter 4, verses 8 through 13. He says, already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And that, and one that you reign, so that we might share in that rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but wise in Christ. We are weak. But you are strong. We are held in honor. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst and are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When we're viled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. 1 Corinthians 4, 8-13. That's an ironic statement, but I think this one is a serious statement. It's talking about how eternal life has been brought through the gospel, and they were suffering for the bringing the gospel. They would eventually die for preaching the gospel. And I think that's what is in mind here. We are dying for what we are doing so that you may have life eternal. Why do they carry that great treasure in jars of clay? The glory does not go to Paul for the size of his ministry and the success of it, that the glory may go to God. And the same is true of men. These men who are fighting against Paul seem to despise Paul and seem to despise him because he was weak and beggarly. He did have to earn his own way. He did have to fight for his opportunities to preach the gospel. He was persecuted, he was harassed, he was stoned, he was flogged. He went hungry and cold. In danger by thieves, in danger by hunger, by exposure. It says even endangered from his countrymen, the Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, endangered from false brothers. He faced all of those things for the glory of the gospel of God 
and he suffered those things, at least in greater part, so that people would see it was not the greatness of Paul, but the greatness of God. Men who puff themselves up, men who talk about their own greatness, men who show themselves and be perfect. I remember being criticized once for making a self-effacing joke about myself and my failure. You know, that's not what a pastor does. A pastor has to be great, perfect. I'm like, do you think anybody actually believes you're perfect? Maybe some of them do, but eventually you're going to be exposed. Eventually they're going to see you're a hypocrite. And if their confidence in their faith comes from you, they're going to lose their confidence in their faith. But if their confidence from the beginning is not in you, but in God, in the Spirit, and they understand that you are just a man, and it was the power of God that saved you, not my skill, not my ability, not my wisdom, not my charisma, then no matter what I do and whatever happens to me, no matter how I stumble, their faith will be in God. And that is good. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that Paul, the greatest minister of the gospel who ever lived, the greatest evangelist who ever lived, points out his own failures throughout this book, throughout the, throughout the Bible, points out that it is not him, that he is nothing but a jar of clay, that the treasure of the gospel is yours, and that he gets out of the way and lets the truth of your word shine, not veiling it, not hiding it, not obscuring the things that offend, but preaching the whole counsel of God in truth with love, that men may see their sin, turn to their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that men may see their sin and repent, that men may see their sin and turn to what is right and live more godly lives. We know, Lord, this can only happen through the power of your Spirit, not the greatness of the messenger. And we thank you, Lord, for that reminder in the life of Paul, for the humility you gave him. And pray that each of us would remember that humility of Paul, which was really the humility of Christ, who left his throne in heaven, who left his glory, who left his authority and came to earth to die in our place. Teach us, Lord, to live our lives in that humility, to serve and glorify you as they did. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.